Jack, Levi. The Book Club from Hell. Hello everyone, this is Jack from The Book Club from Hell, the podcast where we read everything that you've never wanted to. This is something of a bonus episode. Originally, we'd planned on doing a separate episode for each of the two books of Julius Eveler's Revolt Against the Modern World. The episode for book one went fine. At Book Club from Hell Global Headquarters, however, we've run into problems on the second episode. A state-sponsored hack, terrorist activity, extraterrestrial meddling in human affairs, for whatever reason, besides our own incompetence, of course, we have lost Levi's side of the audio for Revolt Against the Modern World's second part. So what to do? The only thing more renowned than Book Club from Hell's popularity is our quality control. As such, I've stitched together my parts from the now-lost second Eveler episode and arranged them into what you're about to listen to. If you found Levi and I talking to each other about Evola a little bit too easy to follow the first time round, well, prepare yourselves for me talking to myself about Hyperborea, Atlantis, and the Kali Yuga. A bit about the second part of Revolt Against the Modern World. In the first book, Evola lays out his metaphysics. In the second, he applies it, tracing what he calls meta-history, the real human history, as found by comparing the myths of Aryan civilizations, and a few non-Aryans as well. It's a strange read, and it'll be an even stranger listen without Levi's steadying hand. But nobody ever said that ontological transformation via the path of listening to Jack mutter to himself was easy. If it were, everyone would do it. Enjoy. Un- unquestionably, we're in the Kali Yuga. If people don't know what all of these terms mean and you haven't listened to the first episode, listen to that one, because there's going to be a lot of assumed knowledge, because... If, if we're going to repeat ourselves, this is going to be you know, a five-hour episode and neither of us can be bothered. No, it, it will make no sense. You should listen to the first episode anyway because it's excellent. It's characteristically excellent, as is everything we do. But also it will give some much-needed philosophical context. How did you find the second book of Revolt Against the Modern World? I liked, I liked this one way less than the first book. Way less enjoyable than the first book. The first book set out this batshit crazy theory of the world, of history. And this, this, this book is him applying that framework to work out how human society, not evolved, but how it degenerated from, from a previous golden age. There were some good bits, but a lot of it was just him listing off different myths that he probably cherry-picked to back up his reasoning. And those bits just got really boring. Really boring. There were, there were some good bits. The book, it got much better towards the end. But, yeah, some, some of it was pretty dull. This had a much stronger Old Man Yells at Cloud vibe than the first book. We've brought up the term Kali Yuga, Golden Age, blah, 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 a few times now. And in the first episode, we talked about it, but we're going to dive in deeper here, a lot deeper. What are the four ages? He does, he does this a lot where he'll bring in examples from a few different cultures and say, look, all of these cultures have these roughly analogous traits, therefore these traits must be 
describing something fundamentally real. He has the same few societies that he likes. So he'll 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 bring in say ancient Greek society and they would they they had this idea of gold, silver, bronze and iron ages. He really really likes Hindu Hinduism, so They've got Satya Yuga, Treta Yuga, Dvapara Yuga, and Kali Yuga, which he says are analogous to those ages uh, in ancient Greece. The Persians had gold, silver, steel, and iron compound ages. And then have, having, having said, okay, look, you've got these, these societies that were really good, strongly Aryan societies, which in Evola land... Yeah, in Evola land, Aryan and good are synonymous, perfectly synonymous. There's this great quote, which reminds me of the, um, the, the, the Terence McKenna quote, the pictorial evidence seems incontrovertible. Evola says, Since I have not invented this mythology myself, however, critics still have to explain its existence. That is, the fact that according to most ancient testimonies and writings, there is no memory that may lend support to evolutionism. When he says evolutionism, he means this idea that you had barbarism and from that arose civilization. He says, no, that's wrong. The fundamental nature of the spiritually elevated race is the golden age, and then that degenerates over time. So... Straight, straight up, he just, he just says, I'm right. And you, the critic, have to contend with the fact that I'm right. <laughs> let's, let's start out, yeah, with the regression of castes. Is that ca caste systems are really cool. Like, really, really good. Maintaining the caste structure and not having any caste mixing and having each member of the caste perform their spiritual duties, orders the world of being. So it, it influences the world of being and prevents chaos in the world of being. So it's it's not only oh, it's not it's not only really cool to have a caste system, but it is metaphysically essential. It is it is an ontological imperative and each each of the ages, each of these four ages that Evola talks about, are based on which which caste is in power and who who the ruling group is. And he he talks about how all of the all of the great trad societies had four castes, except the ancient Greeks who had three. But that was because they were so good that their warrior caste and priestly caste were the same. So. The, the the four castes are you've got so the the top of the pile they're the sacred leaders the the regal caste then you've got the warrior aristocracy then you've got merchants the bourgeoisie and then you've got slaves those are the four castes and the golden age as you would expect is the one ruled over by sacred leaders the big dogs the ones you want in charge they, are, they embody the two powers, the spiritual and temporal powers. They're in communion with the world of being from the world of becoming. Spiritually virile. They demonstrate Olympian sovereignty. He uses that phrase so often. 
Oh, he he's got this this list of like Lovecraft words that he loves, of like telluric, chthonic, subterranean, earthly, lunar, feminine. It's ruled by merchants. Ruled by merchants. Mm. We're being coy. He's not. He says that it is distilled Jewish spirit. That's a quote. But <laughs> he. Man, we just read so much fucking anti-Semitism. <laughs> I guess, yeah, that's a good framework to look at anti-Semitism within. Because, okay, anti-Semitism is bullshit fundamentally. But the different justifications for anti-Semitism, rather than looking at them or trying to order them based on truth, it's probably more instructive to order them based on strangeness. And this is one of the stranger ways that anti-Semitism is justified. So anyway, the Bronze, the Bronze Age ruled by, ruled by merchants. We discussed in the last episode this idea of, yeah, of Fides, this, this sense of devotion to, to certain things within your civilizational structure. And in the Bronze Age, Fides is a social contract. It's transactional, utilitarian, economic. And then finally, you've got the Iron Age, the Fourth Age, the Kali Yuga, which is communism, ruled by slaves. And in this age, the ideas and passions of the demos, so of the demonic totem from which people come, that controls everything, that 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 comes to it has its own agenda and its own wants and needs and it achieves those by controlling human beings the, the miscegenation that's a very nice that's a that's a nice way of saying race mixing at the end of at the end of this book he he says oh yeah maybe maybe it's cyclical maybe the kali yuga will end there'll be an interim period and we'll come back to a golden age maybe it won't so um who knows but yeah, race mixing, caste mixing definitely do have a strong role to play in the out <laughs> the degradation of civilization. It should be an are we the crazy ones drinking game? Every time anti-Semitism comes up, you take a shot. Every time race mixing comes up, you take a shot. Every time women are ruining society comes up, you take a shot and just die instantly <laughs> of alcohol poisoning. He's got a few examples of. Um, how these four ages are represented in society. He's talking about how you can see in architecture the the descent of society, say which which building is the dominant one in a particular city. In the Golden Age, it's the temple. In the Silver Age, the fortress or castle. In the Bronze Age, it's a, a city-state surrounded by walls. That's not a, a building, but, you know, it's Evola, so you just have to... Suck up a bit of fuzziness. And and then in the in the Iron Age, it's the factory. Or say war. The Golden Age war is sacred. The Silver Age war is authoritarian. A bourgeois war is for industry. And the economy and the Iron Age war is the class struggle and global proletarian revolution. He um he gives a lot of these sort of examples, and that's the experience of reading. Evola is he'll say something and then give you say 500 words of 
just him listing different examples from mythology. Given that I don't have an encyclopedic knowledge of, of mythology, I don't know to what extent these things are cherry-picked, to what extent they are representative of the breadth of human experience. It's probably my bias that I assume it's cherry-picked, but I don't know. I have to be balanced and unbiased. I'm an internet anthropologist. My academic career is is based upon my... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There are four buckets we put this in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and that, that is what he's trying to do. He's trying to find universals, or he claims to have found universals in this eternal world of being. Your characterization of him looking for universals is not unfair. He's quite explicit that this is what he's trying to do. But this is, this is a fundamentally scientific worldview, and one which I share, but one which, which Evola explicitly argues against in this book. <laughs> You're being the typical human, no, not human, the, the ant, the worm, crawling around in the materialistic dark age, the Kali Yuga. We'll get onto Evola's geography soon, which is <laughs> which is pretty wild. I mean, as a as a taster, Atlantis literally existed. Nah, first I reckon first let's discuss his anti-Semitism and get that out of the way, cause cause we've become connoisseurs of anti-Semitism of all the different brands of anti-Semitism. He's got this really wacky theory about why Jewish people in every society that they have been and will be part of, are a source of rebellion and instability. <laughs> he, he describes the Jewish people as they were first this priestly elite who formed a united spiritual race from a collection of disparate biological races. Because he, he's got this idea of race as a spiritual phenomenon rather than a material phenomenon. For everyone who wants to know why Jewish people are a constant an unavoidable source of rebellion in every society. It's be- it, it goes back to the 6th and 7th centuries BC, where before then, the military fortunes of Israel had been pretty good. But in the 6th and 7th centuries BC, they started to decline. And this was taken as divine punishment. And Jewish people believed that once they'd been punished enough, God would restore them to their rightful place in the world. And this didn't happen. We're, we're still waiting for, for them to dominate the entire earth. Although Evelyn at the same time seems to think that they dominate or dominated Bronze Age society. So I, I mean, I, I'm looking for too much coherence here, maybe. So anyway, they descended into this passive myth, waiting for God to, to save them. And their rituals just became these hollow formalisms, more and more and more abstract and separate from real life. He had this good bit where, where he said, this explains the Jewish obsession with abstraction that you can find in theoretical physics, mathematics, and Spinoza. Yeah, and also Spinoza, I'm pretty sure, was a... Christian. I think he was ethnically Jewish, but anyway, that I don't think that matters to Evola. <laughs> anyway, they Jewish people can't uphold these increasingly abstract and utopian ideals, so they come to resent any positive order of law or authority. And so they're a constant source of rebellion. As you can see, there is 
ironclad logic. Each statement leads necessarily to the next one. I, t- I, I take your laughing to be laughing of assent. All right. How about how about we go into a bit more detail on the golden age? We've 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 done the the almost obligatory segment for every episode now of how is this author an anti-Semite? Let's go into the golden age. So, Evola says he's got this quote about the golden age, which sums up fundamentally what it is. He says. The first era is essentially the era of being, and hence of truth in a transcendent state. And Evola's idea of how civilizations change over time is that you've got this spiritual race for whom civilization is the, the base condition. They exist and they are a golden age civilization and they can only go down from there. It's not that over time civilization becomes more and more and more sophisticated. It's the the first instantiation of civilization if you are a member of the Hyperborean spiritually virile race is you, you get it right the first time. And these golden age civilizations are characterized by these symbols of regality, polarity, solarity, height, so tall people are better, <laughs> stability, glory, gold, just life in a higher sense. There are, there's this part where he's um where he's looking at myths from different civilizations and saying, "Oh, look, in these civilizations, the gods all have light skin and blonde hair. Fancy that." And in the in the Golden Age civilizations, you didn't need initiation. So from the first episode, we know that initiation is super important to let you live forever and for you to, to be in contact with the world of being. But in the Golden Age, you didn't need to do that because you were you were in a civilization which was fundamentally of the world of being. <laughs> no, no, you were literally immortal. You you were immortal in the context of this Golden Age civilization, but Golden Age civilizations are not immortal. So that, I mean, see, you're you're, sort, you're, you're immortal, but that's contingent on the existence of ad of a mortal civilization. <laughs> I think so. I I don't use this word very often in my day to day life. You you mean the the southern races? When when he talks about. When he talks about these ages and things like that, it's not like the entire world is just globally golden age and then there's this state change to silver age. You have these things in different amounts at different times in different places. This is this is where this is where the batshit rocket takes off. <laughs> this is where we <laughs> in by in Greek mythology, do you mean in the history of the world, the unimpeachable fact that Hyperborea and Atlantis existed? Yeah, when we talk about when we talk about the Golden Age, the Golden Age really is Hyperborean civilization. No one else got it this right. Not the the shitty southern continent of Lemuria, where these maternal Telluric cults came from and ended up poisoning everything. Hyperborea was, um, was 
An, a a landmass on the North Pole, where, where the Golden Age civilization was, the northern boreal light and spirituality. <laughs> and, and this is where Aryan civilizations come from. His, his derivation of um, why Hyperborea needs to exist is pretty good. So he, he loves the polar symbol. Loves it. And so Evola really liked swastikas. As in, he felt that they were, they, they were a powerful, masculine, virile symbol of the sun. And he, he says that they are echo... They're some of the strongest symbols of Hyperborea. They call back to Hyperborea. He's got, so he says in a quote, According to tradition, in an epoch of remote prehistory that corresponds to the Golden Age or Age of Being... A symbolical island or polar land was a real location situated in the Arctic, in the area that today corresponds to the North Pole. And we know that Hyperborea existed and that the, the Aryan races came from there because from, say, Aryan texts from India, they have the idea of Dvipa, an insular continent, and Svetadvipa, which was an island of splendor in the far north, which, were, which, which was home to transcendent beings who lived with Vishnu. And these were blonde and golden beings. So you're already twigging on that because they were blonde and golden, these must have been some pretty special people. Also, from, from ancient Iranian texts, there was this, this idea of Ariana Viejo, which was this original seat of glory created by the god of light and it was also in the far north you're beginning to see some parallels here in china there was the country of the transcendent men with soft bones again in the north and in tibet the Changshambala, the northern city of peace i mean the, the evidence is piling up hyperborea existed and the when we talk about how this is Hyperborea was polar. The Earth literally revolved around Hyperborea. Hyperborea was the axis. <laughs> like a big, big swastika. And I'm, I'm not saying this frivolously. Evola identifies the swastika with Hyperborea. <laughs> it's a very potent symbol. The problem is, if you read Evola intensely enough and for long enough when he says these sorts of things they make a very strange type of sense if you get immersed enough in Evola land you read that and you think okay if I accept all of your first principles I can see where this is coming from and then as soon as you step out of Evola land and start interacting with the real world again you look at it and you think what the fuck is going on so this this northern civilization of the Hyperboreans Evola contrasts unfavorably, uh, he contrasts favorably, sorry, to the southern civilizations, the southern stocks, the Lemurians, the continent of Lemuria, which also geologists agree didn't exist like Hyperborea, but <laughs> he says, um, 
So these southern civilizations are feminine, maternal, lunar civilizations. He says, and it, and there was a warm climate in the south versus the harsh, cold climate of the north. He says. It was only natural that in the South, the object of the most immediate experience was not the solar principle, but rather its effects displayed in the luscious fertility of the earth. He says, then, the favourable climate and the natural plentiness eventually induced most people to seek peace and rest, and to cultivate the feelings of contemplation and of getting lost in nature, rather than an active pursuit of affirmation and self-transcendence. Southern spirituality is actually what... Terence McKenna is all about. Terence McKenna talking about how you need to seek peace and love and worship the vegetable maternal spirit. And Evola is saying, no, that's... You're a cuck if you do that. I don't think Terence would take that as an insult. Yeah, I think he'd agree with that. Terence talked about how the Indo-Europeans swept down from north of the Black Sea and destroyed the mushroom-eating civilizations of the great goddess whereas Evola is saying no those indo-europeans are descendants of the boreal northern light and were really good <laughs> there's, there's, there is a very weird convergence between fruit of the gods and revolt against the modern world why did Hyperborea end, though? It ended with climate change. You know, you know how Hyperborea was the axis of the Earth and was a real place? Evola says, we know, and I, I want to emphasise, we know. So he says, we know that owing to an astrophysical cause, that is, to the tilting of the terrestrial axis, in every era there has been a change in climate. What he's saying is that the Earth's axis shifted and Hyperborea was no longer the pole. And this might have been because of miscegenation. Hmm, might have been. He, he talks about how in, in the book of Genesis, the Ben Elohim, the children of God, interbred with the daughters of men, leading to degeneration. And he thinks this might actually be an echo of this, this race mixing that corrupted the golden age. And the corruption was so great that the earth shifted on its axis. So Hyperborea was no longer the pole. And then Hyperborea flooded. <laughs> it's really... The earth shifts on its axis and Hyperborea becomes uninhabitable. You've got... In um, an ancient Iranian text, he describes how this far northern golden seat of power eventually came to suffer these 10-month-long winters, and no one could live there anymore, unfortunately, after, after miscegenation caused the Earth's axis to shift and made Hyperborea uninhabitable. And the beings of Hyperborea, because they're immortal, even though Hyperborea stopped existing. Sometimes Evola said that they just all died. Sometimes he says, that, he says that they're invisible and have just retreated somewhere and we can't see them, but they're still there. 
There's a quote. When impiety began to run rampant on Earth, the survivors of previous eras moved to an underground location. In other words, they acquired an invisible existence that is often situated in the mountains as a result of transpositions with the symbolism of the heights. These beings continue to exist on these mountain peaks until a new manifestation is made possible for them as the end of the cycle of decadence approaches. So, you had the Golden Age and Hyperborea. They interbred with Lemurians. The Earth's axis shifted. Hyperborea became uninhabitable. The Hyperboreans, some of them, led an invisible existence in mountains. Because they're high up, and high is, is better than low. You, yeah. Hmm. <laughs> okay, so from mythology, we know that there was some sort of island in the northern Atlantic. Turns out that was Atlantis. So the northern primordial race, the, the good stocks, some of them migrated to this northern Atlantic land from Hyperborea and formed the, the civilization of Atlantis. Some of the Hyperboreans also went down into northern Europe from Hyperborea, which is why the northern Europeans are so good, naturally. But <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, he's got this whole section where he talks about how good Germans are. Again, naturally. And from Atlantis, you also got migrations into the rest of the world. But the, the Atlantic stocks weren't as good as the Hyperborean stocks because the Atlanteans interbred with people that they shouldn't have interbred with. And this, this led to degeneration of Atlantean society and eventually to the sinking of Atlantis. It's a priestly... I don't know how to pronounce... Is it gynococracy or gynococracy? And I, I want to be true to the source material here. Anyway, the Atlanteans mixed with inferior races. And well, they, they, these are... So he's, got, he's got this whole... He's got a list of different classifications of Silver Age civilizations. So the, 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 the first Atlantean Silver Age civilization was Demetrian. So after Demeter, the, I think it was the ancient Greek goddess of harvest or fecundity or something like that yeah and that was that was the best of these silver silver age civilizations they worshipped the moon because it was a bright shining extraterrestrial body it's not as good as the sun which is of course the best symbol but it's not as bad as some of the other things that people came on to came to venerate so this is a society where the priestly caste is trying to dominate the regal caste. It's also a, a, a civilization of the mother. It's associated with femininity. Why is that? Well, he compares, for example, how the solar symbol was, was conceived of in Golden Age and Silver Age civilizations. In the Golden Age civilizations, he uses the example of Apollo being used to represent the sun itself as something which is dominating and unchanging. Whereas in Silver Age civilizations, 
the sun can be represented by Helios, who rises and sets. It's something that undergoes birth and death. And what then? So if, if, if you were born, what does that mean? Well, you had to have come from a mother, which means that a mother is superior to you naturally. And this, this conception of the sun means that the Silver Age societies believed everything came from a woman. So therefore, a, the woman is the prime generator of everything. Clearly, these Tuluric influences weren't indigenous to Atlantis, to the, to the northern stocks. This is from contact with Lemuria. <laughs> this got so bad, so bad, that Atlantis sank. <laughs> and you know the flood myths that you, you were talking about earlier in the episode, flood myths? Well, the flood myths are memories of the destruction of Atlantis. He says about these flood myths. Its original content is a historical event. According to the tale of Plato and Diodorus, it essentially represented the end of an Atlantic land. And then you can also find it in this concept of of the waters of death, across which you find immortality. He says, post-diluvian generations, consisting entirely of mortal beings, must cross through initiation in order to be reintegrated with the divine state of the dead, namely the lost race. As we were saying before, you now need initiation to connect with the world of being because you're not living in a golden age anymore. And the sinking of Atlantis echoes through time in myths of needing to cross waters of death to reach immortality because the waters of death now cover Atlantis. And um, so he mentions the Chaldean tradition of a divine garden to the west across the deep waters of death where King Shamashnapishtim lives and he was a king who survived the flood and knows the secret of immortality. Also the Celtic and Gaelic sagas, this island, mythical island of Avalon, which was actually Atlantis. No, not the airport that, that yeah, that, that non-Victorians fly into by accident because they think they're going to Tullerine. Yeah, hot tip for those people who are flying into Melbourne. Don't fly to Avalon Airport. It's the wrong one. Anyway, so Hyperborea was real. Atlantis was real. And you can already see tradition degenerating, e- even from the step from Hyperborea to Atlantis. And relative to our current age, Atlantis was great, but... It was still worse than Hyperborea. Again, we've been discussing the civilizations of Demeter. So he says, The pure and peaceful Demetrian spirituality, portrayed as the moon's light, characterized the type of the Silver Age and, most likely, the cycle of the first Atlantic civilization. With the feminine moon rules over, still predominantly virile qualities but material virile qualities how you get these other types of priestly gyna gynocracies gynarchy also works i mean i we're trying to pronounce evola's made up words and running into problems i wonder what it was in italian anyway so this feminine element comes into conflict with virile masculinity and this conflict in the civilizations of Demeter can lead to Amazonian, Titanic, or Aphrodistic civilizations. 
<laughs> Let's talk about the Amazons first. Again, the... <sighs> so each of these is a degeneration of the civilizations of Demeter. And in an, in an Amazonian civilization, how do women respond to this virile male revolt? Well, the women enact the violent authoritarian uh, authority of femininity over the masculine virile element. He says, There is Amazonism wherever there are priests who do not yearn to be kings, but rather to dominate kings. So um, <laughs> you can get Amazonian civilization. Another direction that this can go in is the Aphrodistic civilization, which is worse than the Amazonian civilization, which is worse than the Demetrian civilization, which is worse than the Hyperborean civilization. And in Aphrodistic civilization, so Amazonian civilizations, you get angry, violent women suppressing men. It's the, the angry lesbianism civilization. The, the Valerie Solana civilization, the scum civilization. Yeah, he's got this quote. The chthonic and infernal nature penetrates the virile principle and lowers it to a phallic level. The woman now dominates man as he becomes enslaved to the senses and a mere instrument of procreation. This is the sex, the sex maniac civilization. And then the third possible outcome of the Titanic revolt is that the Titanic revolt is successful. And... In this, you get... I think this is the Bronze Age now. So things are even worse. That if, the, if the Titanic revolt of men is successful, material virility, or as he calls it, phallic man, is supreme. But phallic man has lost his spiritual connection. He's not spiritually virile. He's just brutish and violent and dumb. And he says, the spirit of a materialistic and violent race that no longer recognized the authority of the spiritual principle corresponding to the priestly symbol or to the spiritually feminine brother. And these people usurp through violent means what a, a regal king would achieve spiritually. And interestingly, interestingly, Atlantis, when it flooded was probably actually home to a violent, very materialistic Bronze Age race. And the sinking might have been because they were practicing black magic or titanic black magic. He, he, just throws, he just throws this in there and he doesn't elaborate any further on what titanic black magic is. But it made Atlantis sink. Dionysian civilization. The last of these, this particular crop of civilizations. And this is a degeneration of Titanic civilization. Dionysian civilizations are worse than Titanic ones because not only do they have the materialism of Titanic civilizations, but they're not violent anymore. And they, do, they seek to achieve immortality through a sacred frenzy. So getting, getting trashed, having sex. Yeah, the feminine principle dominates phallic man through eroticism. I think I think this describes Terence quite well. I reckon Bronze Age Bronze Age pervert would be more Titanic cycle. I reckon that's that's where he fits. 
It's not all bad, though. There was a bright spot in this, this degeneration. Between the Bronze Age and the Iron Ages, there's been found a heroic revival, <laughs> which... It's a, it's a, there have been a few heroic revivals, but probably the best one was Ancient Rome. He likes, he likes Ancient Rome a lot, or at least part of it. it, particularly the start of the Roman Empire. He really likes. Uh, he says, um, Hesiod mentions that following the Bronze Age and prior to the Iron Age, Zeus created a better lineage out of the, those races whose destiny was to descend ingloriously to Hades. Hesiod called this lineage the race of heroes to whom it is given the possibility of attaining immortality and partaking, despite all, in a state similar to that of the primordial age. The way he talks about Rome is one example of several instances where he, he'll describe a civilization through the lens of Evola. He does the same with, say, ancient Greece, but you know, I, I can't be bothered discussing that as well. Where he'll he he pretty much describes the inner workings of a civilization as interactions between different strata of races within that one civilization interacting, and the character of a civilization is determined by the extent to which each individual stratum is expressed at the expense of all the others. It's very adversarial, and so Rome was formed when people of northern and boreal stocks came down from the north, arrived in Italy, and dominated the native populations, the native southern populations. And the Italian peninsula was racially mixed, but the Roman ideal was so strong that they actually created a spiritual race from this mishmash of biological races on the Italian peninsula. He wrote over 20 books, and we've only read one of those. At least from this book, especially the conclusion of it, he seemed pretty pessimistic that that was possible. He was saying, yeah, in our dark age, there are a few people who retain the light of tradition and keep the flame burning, but they're so disconnected from the rest of society and society is so unwilling to listen to them that there's no real hope that they will create a new spiritual race to rival the, the greatest achievements of Hyperborea. So I'm not sure if that's the project. In, I think he wrote a book called Ride the Tiger where he proposed some sort of strange traditionalist accelerationism where you make... You, you're, you're basically trying to bring about the end of the Kali Yuga. What are we talking about? Oh, Rome. Rome was good because it also fought wars with, with um, feminine civilizations around it, like Carthage. That <laughs> was, was a really good feature of the Romans. They didn't tolerate any feminine civilizations around them. <laughs> and the Roman civilization was... At its best, they formed a true spiritual empire, in fact, with the Caesars. He says, of, of Julius Caesar, he says, Caesar embodied the Aryan Western type of the conquerors. He, he goes on to say, with Augustus, who in the eyes of the Romans embodied the Numen and the Eternatus of the son of Apollo, the son, 
the unity of the two powers was re-established following a reformation that meant to restore the principles of the ancient Roman religion against the invasion of the exotic cults and superstitions. So you've got, you've got this degradation from the Golden Age to the Bronze Age. Everything's getting worse and worse and worse. You're losing connection to the world of being. You're more and more feminine, less spiritually virile. And then Rome, you've got a heroic revival. It seems for a moment, maybe humanity has halted this decline into decadence. Maybe we can restore a golden age. But unfortunately, no. The the southern stocks of the Italian peninsula with their maternal and chthonic and telluric lunar spiritualities and superstitions began to overcome the northern influence in Rome. And then Christianity came in and ruined everything forever. I mean, not all was lost. After Rome, you did have feudalism in the Holy Roman Empire, which Evola was partial to. He, he did like those. And the Holy Roman Empire was basically Nordic Germans taking some of the good bits from Rome and, and making an empire out of it. And Evola liked that. Part of it was that he likes the German races. He says of the Germans, These races descended from the last offshoots to leave the Arctic seat and that therefore had not suffered the miscegenation and the alterations experienced by similar populations that had abandoned the Arctic seat much earlier, as is the case with the Paleo-Indo-European stocks that had settled in the prehistoric Mediterranean. We've discussed, we've discussed the Holy Roman Empire and feudalism in the past episode a fair bit. We probably don't need to go into it too much here. He also really liked the, the, the Ghibellines, the, the Guelph-Ghibelline conflict in Italy was something that seems to have really inspired Evola. Yeah, because with Greece, that's kind of his model of how even civilizations that are pretty good decline. That, that yeah, you've, you've, got, you've got your native stocks in, you know, say, say in, in ancient Greece, you've got your native stocks, you've got your Pelasgians, or however it's pronounced, who actually did exist. I'll give I'll give Evola that. The, the Pelasgians were the the original ha- inhabitants or the inhabitants of the area around what is now Greece. And then you had Indo-Europeans move in from the north. And in Evola's telling, those Indo-Europeans were descendants of the Hyperboreans, and they were the ones who brought in so- <laughs> all the good stuff to Greece. And Greece declines when the southern indigenous populations get too much power. I think his, his main problem with philosophy was he said, you've got these, these people who are living almost all in the world of becoming or only know the world of becoming. And they're trying, they're trying to construct theories of how the world works from in his words, outside, only by looking at the particularities of the world of becoming and then trying to infer from that the world of being, or they didn't even see it in, in those terms necessarily. One of, the, one of the main things, though, yeah, ruining, ruining the West is Christianity. He, he says of Christianity, 
the advent of Christianity marked the beginning of an unprecedented decline. So Evel is sour about Christianity for a number of reasons. One of them is that it was, it was the final nail in the coffin of the Roman heroic revival. Rome was already weakened by the time Christianity showed up. Otherwise, Christianity wouldn't have been successful in totally destroying the Roman virile idea. But it still contributed to, to the end of this heroic revival. He, he talks about how Christianity appeals to broken, incomplete, desperate souls. And then he enumerates several reasons as to why Christianity is really bad for, for anyone interested in tradition. So it offers universal brotherhood, regardless of rank, which is obviously wrong because there is in the world of being a spiritual hierarchy, whether we're aware of it or not. There's no initiation, so you can, you can never become immortal. You can never reconnect with the spiritual world. It denies caste, which is self-evidently a bad thing. God is personal. It's not a link to the world of, of being. It encourages helplessness before the supernatural, whereas what you should be doing if you're a, a virile spiritual trad man is using rights to influence the world of being and bend it to your will. And this is also part of Christian dualism. He doesn't like Christian dualism, this split between the natural world and the supernatural world, because in Christianity, you can't, as a member of the natural world, influence the supernatural world. Whereas Tradman knows that you can. If you know the right rights, you can. But you can't do that if you're a Christian. And it further encourages helplessness. Also, you have this mortifying asceticism, which rejects action. No, existing within a Existing within a caste system and living according to bhakti is what you should be doing. Christianity also broke apart this, um, how, how ideally you have society ruled by a spiritual king in whom material power and spiritual power are combined. But Christianity broke that apart. So there's, in the book of Matthew, it says, Render therefore unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. And the Roman Catholic Church, with this as its basis, sought to dominate all regal power by denying them spiritual authority. So the church would rule over spiritual matters, and you would have, say, temporal kings ruling over worldly matters, which was bad enough. The Catholic Church was bad enough, but at least it retained some sort of of pale tradition. But then the Protestants came along. And Protestantism in Evola's telling is basically a revolt against all of the good bits of Catholicism. It, it purifies the, the bad bits. Martin Luther, he, how he, he rejected the paths of action and contemplation, those ascetic paths. And you, you would be solved... Uh, Saved by faith alone. So there was, there was no ascetic path. He rejected hierarchy because he said Christ didn't give infallible authority to any one church. And so the, as an individual, you can interpret scripture yourself without control. 
and that's not okay. This, in turn, would lead to humanism and rationalism. He says, The single individual who got rid of the dogmatic tradition and the principle of spiritual authority by claiming to have within himself the capability of right discernment gradually ended up promoting the cult of that which is in him as a human being as the basis of all judgments, namely the faculty of reason, thus turning it into the criterion of all certitudes, truths, and norms. No, you must accept tradition. Unrealism is, is one of the defining features of our age, or maybe the defining feature. It's this where you've totally lost the conception of the world of being as existing. You live purely and materially within the world of becoming. This is where the book started getting good again. So he talks about unreality towards the end of the book. And this is where it got more enjoyable because he's so obviously angry about this. He's so bitter. And that comes through in his writing. His prose can be pretty turgid much of the time, but there was more venom in it. (laughs) He says of, of modern societies that only recognize the world of being... In this type of civilization, everything will begin and end with man, including the heavens, the hells, the glorifications, and the curses. The human experience will be confined to this world, which is not the real world, with its feverish and yearning creatures, its artistic vanities and its geniuses, its countless machines, factories, and leaders. Unrealism manifests itself in so many different ways. One of the ways that it manifests is in evolution. Or this idea of evolution, which we talked about in the first episode a fair bit and why he really disagrees with it. But basically, we've got this modern and incorrect view that greater things come from lesser things, of progress. But in actuality, yeah, great things exist at their greatest extent initially and only degrade from there. He talks about how pre-human hominids... So humans didn't evolve from pre-human hominids. Instead, pre-human hominids are degenerate residues of cycles, the vital potential of which has been long exhausted. Yeah, like the ghouls. <laughs> He's got... And he also... He, he cleans up the fact that... So you, you might have some science-addled mind asking, well, why, isn't there, why aren't there fossils of these Hyperboreans? And he will say, the Hyperboreans had soft bones, which weren't retained in the fossil record. Because in Chinese mythology, there's, a, there's talk about a noble soft bone race. So there's, there's a data point for you. And also, also, northerners cremate their dead. So they purify the, the earth from the bodies of the dead, so they purely exist spiritually. Whereas southerners bury their dead. That's another reason why you're not going to find the bones of the Hyperboreans. They also might not have needed tools like we do. We, we suck, so we need metal tools or stone tools. But the Hyperboreans were so spiritually virile that they didn't need them. So you're not going to find those in in the archaeological record. (laughs) Yeah, you know when you were kids and you'd be fighting with, you know, fighting in inverted commas with another five-year-old or six-year-old and you'd be like, oh, well, I shot you 
And then the other kid will go, nah, but I had a shield. And then you go, nah, but I have a gun that can shoot through shields. And then the other kid goes, nah, but I have a super shield that can stop that gun. And it keeps going like that. That is what reading Evel is like. He'll say, there was Hyperborea. And you will say, why is there no evidence of it? He'll say, well, it sank. And you say, okay, well, why can't you see, why can't you see evidence of it having sunk? It's like, well, there was black, ma- Titanic black magic involved. It's like, well, why can't we find evidence of the people there? Well, they had soft bones. Well, we live in a fundamentally insane world, so you, you have to roll with it. Yeah, he really hates science. He really does not like science. One of the ways that unrealism manifests in the modern world is our love of science, which is really just finding mathematical relationships between things in the world of becoming. And we we take the worth of these relationships to purely be its predictive power. And again, it's predictive power in the material world. We don't care if it allows any sort of transcendence or anything like that. And it's it supports Slave domination in Evola's telling as well. Unrealism also can manifest in the, in the nation-state. Feudalism was held together with fides, this, this faithfulness to the person above you in the hierarchy. But when this is lost, you either get centralising political absolutism, where you you have a secular state trying to enforce unity through violence, or you just get total disintegration. And the nation state is is the product of when you get this centralising political absolutism that tries that holds together people forcefully who would have been spiritually united under a regal, virile monarch or under a nice feudal system where they would have been faithful to their lord or, or whatever. Once you get individualism taking hold, individualism leads to collectivism. How, you might ask? Well, Evel has got you covered there. So you've got, you've got states emancipating themselves from a, a divine empire or a sacred empire. And... The leaders of these states, because they're not part of a sacred civilization anymore, the way that they get faithfulness or fetus or fides, it's it's purely material. And it's revocable if the, the population don't like being ruled or if someone else thinks that they can rule better and has the material basis for overthrowing the current rulers. Well, they just can because there's no spiritual authority anymore. And eventually... So that's sort of an individualism of states within an empire, but that process continues and you get the individualism of individuals within those states. And he says, this is the the democratised and liberal state, a prelude to the last phase of this general involution that is a purely collectivised society. So this... This emancipation that started at the state level eventually reaches down to the individual, but it continues. So the individual is eventually broken down and all that's left are the demonic totems from from which people get their animating force. And those totems have their own aims and start to seek out to achieve those aims using people as their substrate. 
we talked about demonic totems more in the first episode, but I think the base nature of a human, and when I say base, I mean lower, it's not an elevated nature, is from a demonic totem that is almost the animating force of, of a stock. And when people die, having not been initiated and not having connection to the world of being, they return to that totem and are dissolved in it. And then the totem will express itself again in another person. And it turns out these totems have their own agendas. And as individualism goes further and further and further, these totems express themselves more and more and more through the people who are expressions of that totem, which leads to collectivism. I think it's more that uh, you are an expression of whichever particular totem is of your stock. But as the process of unreality progresses, you have less will and the stock or the, the totem, the demon, comes to control your actions more and more. This, it, it, it just flies off the planet. So he, he says... With individualism paving the way for collectivism. I've got a few a few quotes here that are... Look, explain it as best as you can. So fundamentally, I think this is incoherent, which might explain some of the difficulty in grasping it. But maybe these quotes will, will assist. So he says... But the law of action-reaction determines a collectivist upheaval to follow automatically every individualistic usurpation. I'm assuming the law of action-reaction, that he's not making a Newtonian statement there, because he wouldn't be about that sort of thing. I think he just made this law up. <laughs> of the demonic forces living through humans and bending humans to their will, he says... The emergence of a non-human element and a sub-personal reality that has a mind and a life of its own and that employs men as mere tools. And that's where we're headed. We're headed to a place where the demonic totems enforce a collectivism. <laughs> it's a very different type of insanity too, to say reading Varg. It's hybrid. <laughs> he saw the the apotheosis of the, the madness of our age, the Kali Yuga, in the conflict between the USA and the Soviet Union. So I think, I think this book was written in the 60s, so obviously the Soviet Union hadn't fallen yet. And he sees this conflict as the conflict that will lead to the ultimate domination of society by the, by the slave caste. Because as our societies exist at the moment when he was writing the market economy run by certain people was still a very po powerful and potent force in society <laughs> run by the merchants but inevitably there will be a domination of everything by the slave caste and the the cold war was the vehicle through which that was to happen because the USA and the Soviet Union, in his telling, were, were very similar when, when you consider it from a traditionalist perspective. They were both strongly anti-traditional. Both Marxism and liberalism view humans as these, these fundamentally shapeless things that you can mould into whatever you want. And so, <laughs> 
I mean, I guess I guess some of the liberal educationalists believe that you, know, you, you can make people into anything if you just educate them properly. I mean, John Locke had the tabula rasa idea that people were just totally a blank slate and you can make them into a, la- a, a wide variety of things depending on how you educate them. Yeah. <laughs> his, his view of the Soviet Union was interesting and his view of the US was even more interesting. Because, like, what he thought of the Soviet Union was sort of what you'd expect. So it represents the slave caste. And had none of the, the French Revolution's romanticism, he said that Lenin and Trotsky approached the revolution as technicians and almost mathematically calculated what to do. That doesn't seem to have been the case historically. There was much more contingency in the Russian Revolution, particularly the Bolshevik coup, than Evola is, is making out. He goes on to talk about America as a much more insidious vehicle for collectivism. Because, yes, it is ruled by the merchants. <laughs> it represents the merchant class. But they've found out a way to collectivize that's more effective than the Bolshevik collectivism. Bolshevik collectivism, they just violently impose it on people. Whereas the Americans make you like it. The Amer- so there, he talks about, say, the American love of standardizing things. American large cities which dwarf the individual and make you feel tiny. And then American mass culture. Movies, music, it flattens people, makes them all the same. And it also, they love technology. And technology also dehumanizes people and disconnects them from the spiritual world. And the Americans mechanized. Yeah. (laughs) There are worrying parallels between all of these people that we've been reading. But (laughs) this is one of my favorite quotes from the the entire book. When this is pure distilled old man yells at cloud energy. He talks about jazz as this, this revolting phenomenon. He says... In the early days of Bolshevism, someone formulated the ideal of a cacophonous collectivist music that was meant to purify music itself of its sentimental bourgeois content. This is what America has realised on a large scale and spread all over the world through a very significant phenomenon, jazz. In the ballrooms of American cities, where hundreds of couples shake like epileptic and automatic puppets to the sounds of black music, what has awakened is a truly is truly a mass state and the life of a mechanized collective entity. You hear that? You listen to jazz music, you shake like an epileptic, <laughs> and you enter a mass collective state. It just makes you wonder though, what would he think of like if if Evola were alive today and you, you opened up Spotify in front of him and said Hey, mate, have a listen to this. And you started playing him Takashi 6 9 <laughs> Compared to popular music today, jazz is so tame. I wonder what he'd think of grindcore. Oh, Burzum. What would he think of Burzum? What do you think his thoughts would be on Suicide Boys? I don't... I, I don't know what the pure, pure music of being would sound like. I don't know. Probably like Nordic warrior chants or 
Clearly not jazz. <laughs> Binaural beats. <laughs> I've been getting really into pink noise recently. He just listened to Arctic Icebreaker 10-hour study mixes on YouTube. Anyway, I'm sick of Evola. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not talking about him anymore. We've reached the end. We're in the Kali Yuga. Everything's, everything's fucked and it's not getting better. At the very end of the book, he said, there are a handful of people keeping the trad flame alive and the one advantage of the Kali Yuga is that if you truly adhere to the path of tradition, you can achieve things in this age more easily than people in other ages because the very act of remaining traditional today is... It requires a special type of man. And I'm not, I'm not using gender-inclusive language here. It is a special type of man. So, what, <laughs> having read both books of Revolt Against the Modern World, what are your impressions? For those, for those just listening and not watching, Levi's just rubbing his face in his hands. Literacy is a sign of a decadent society anyway, so you've got many reasons to envy the illiterate. I actually quite enjoyed reading the first book because I, f I find it enjoyable to be given an intellectual system that is internally fairly consistent but is just totally alien to how I think. I find it quite fun to, to inhabit a world like that. But yeah, by the time I finished the second part of Revolt Against the Modern World, I was so ready for it to be finished. The second part's also just less interesting because it's... It's just made up history. Like, yeah, there, there are some bits, you know, when he's talking about how Atlantis sank because of titanic black magic being abused, you think, oh, that's kind of funny, but <sighs> I enjoyed it a lot less than, than the first book. And it's just, it's just long. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there are a few books I could recommend less. Yeah, I'd put it, I'd put it above Varg's Smile. <laughs> Bronze Age was definitely more incoherent, but shorter and funnier. I think I gave the first book like a preliminary score of six or seven because it, I really enjoyed the wackiness of something that was fairly internally consistent but predicated on first principles that were totally alien. But I'm going to have to knock down points because I just, I just got so sick of this. So I'm going to give it a... Probably give it a five. It's still, it's still got some funny bits when he talks about Atlantis dead seriously. But, yeah, I think a five is, is in order. Imagine taking acid and Evola just visits you and starts talking at you for, for ten hours and won't leave you alone. He's really lonely in Hades and crawls out <laughs> just to talk to you. Hey man, let me tell you about the world of being.